Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast interview with Sarah Bren, Director of Re- Refugee and Immigrant Program, and Teresa Dykostrzak, Staff Attorney in the Women's Human Rights Project at the Advocates for Human Rights. My name is Glicaria Tiocano, and I am a Staff Attorney and Training and Legal Support Manager at the Immigration Advocates Network. We invited Sarah and Teresa to talk with us today about a recent decision by the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, and that is matter of AB. We will talk about the holding of this case that AG Sessions assigned to himself, how it impacts immigrants, and what advocates can do to help their clients who are affected by this decision. We will provide some insight into how attorneys can push back and make different arguments to defend their clients. So um, welcome to both of you, and uh, why don't we start off with a brief introduction of yourselves and uh, the work you do as the Advocates for Human Rights. Great. Uh, so welcome, everyone. My name is Sarah Brennis. I direct the Refugee and Immigrant Program at the Advocates for Human Rights. Um, and in our program, the Refugee and Immigrant Program, is the one direct legal services branch of our organization. So we provide free legal services to asylum seekers and others who have survived human rights abuses and are seeking protection through U.S. immigration laws. Um, and we work through our staff attorneys and um, through placing cases with hundreds of pro bono volunteer attorneys that um, we partner with on the individual cases. Again, this is Teresa Dykoschek. I'm a staff attorney with the Women's Human Rights mm-hmm. Program. And in that program, we work with partners in countries all around the world in order to work to reform laws and practices relating to violence against women. And we do that through monitoring and reporting on the implementation of laws relating to violence against women. Uh, We also do advocacy at the United Nations for changes to those laws. And we also will train systems actors on best practices. Thank you so much. And uh, we at EN use uh, many of your materials. Uh, we use a lot of your resources, and uh, they are very helpful to our membership. Um, but as I mentioned, we are here to discuss a recent decision issued by AG Sessions. Uh, would you like to provide us with some background information on uh, what this case is about and then tell us um, what uh, the Attorney General actually decided on this case? Sure. So a little bit of background that um, A.B., she is a woman from El Salvador, and she's the mother of three children. She had indicated that she had been a victim of domestic violence, um, and that included physical, emotional, and sexual abuse by her ex-husband. Her asylum application had been based on her persecution as a member of a particular social group, and that particular social group was El Salvadoran women who were unable to leave their domestic relationships where they had children in common with their partners. So the BIA uh, overturned the immigration judge's decision which denied her application uh, for asylum, and then the BIA remanded it back to the immigration judge with an order that um, he should grant asylum after the completion of her background checks. And in particular, the BIA recognized that the particular social group was really similar to the particular social group from the ARCG case. And that case involved a woman from Guatemala who also was a victim of domestic violence. 
And so the BIA in the AB case stated that AB had actually established that her ex-husband had persecuted her because of her status in the particular social group. And they also determined that the El Salvadorian government was unwilling or unable to help her. But after the remand, the immigration judge disagreed with the BIA's interpretation and certified and returned the matter back to the BIA in light of intervening developments in the law. And the, immigra uh, the immigration judge had cited several court of appeal decisions relating to domestic violence victims. And so as part of the decision, the Attorney General's decision, he overturned the 2016 BIA decision in ARCG. He vacated the BIA's decision for AB in granting her asylum, or directing her asylum to be granted, and then also set the analysis uh, to, that should be followed for cases involving persecution based on membership in a particular social group. And so for a little more context in detail, the immigration regulations allow for broad discretion for the Attorney General to review BIA cases, essentially stating that if the Attorney General directs the board to refer a case to him, then they should. Um, and it's been very rare that it's, that it's actually used. <clears throat> it um, actually, one of the cases that um, it, it was that the Attorney General did, Attorney General did um, certify a case to themselves was the matter of RA, which is um, one of the, the first cases where uh, domestic violence survivors were categorized in a particular social group. And that case went on for more than 15 years, and there were three attorneys general that uh, certified the case to themselves, um, both Republican and Democrats. And in the end, they all ultimately decided they should leave it to the Board of Immigration Appeals um, for the decision-making on that issue. So this is um, a rare act in certifying a case to himself and um, also significant because it already was well-decided and um, well considered um, by uh, previous administrations and previous Board of Immigration Appeal decisions. So in March of this year, AG Sessions certified this case to himself, and he requested briefing on a specific question, and that was whether and under what circumstances being a victim of private criminal activity constitutes a cognizable particular social group for purposes of an application for asylum or withholding of removal. Um, so essentially it was a two-part question and whether being the victim of private criminal activity as he described, and Teresa will talk a little bit more about how problematic that categorization is by itself in relation to domestic violence, um, and can it ever constitute a cognizable social group. And then second, uh, if being a victim of a quote-unquote private criminal activity can constitute a particular social group, the AG also wanted additional briefing on uh, the circumstances in, in, in which this would actually be the case. Right, and we have seen AG Sessions do that, uh, assign cases to himself on more than one occasion recently. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit, because you mentioned that um, the, um, uh, the woman on the case was a victim of domestic violence. Uh, would, uh, does this case, uh, only apply or it only affects individuals who were victims of domestic violence? No, it doesn't. So um, the decision, it talks about the analysis that all of the immigration judges should be making when they're evaluating applications for asylum based on persecution uh, as a member of a particular social group. So it's going to impact a lot of different claims 
for those who are persecuted by non-state actors, including victims of domestic violence or victims of female genital mutilation, gang violence, LGBTQ persons, is going to impact them as well because they're also going to need to demonstrate that the government was either unwilling or unable to help them because the AG was focusing on those who are victims of quote-unquote private crimes, private criminal activities, and so all of these people would fall into those type of categories potentially, and so it, it's a broader application. And could you, um, could you describe what the policy looked like um, on, on, on these kinds of cases before um, AG Sessions' decision? Well, I think what's really important to remember is that in this decision, um, even though he was explicitly saying that he was overturning ARCG, he didn't create any new definition or any new legal test here. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's making a blanket exclusion of essentially claims involving non-state actors, and, and what he's quoted as saying in the decision is generally claims by aliens pertaining to domestic violence or gang violence per, per, uh, perpetrated by non-governmental actors will not qualify for asylum. So really trying to say the litmus test is the threshold issue is whether or not it was a, a state actor or not, and really kind of um, encouraging adjudicators to see that as, as, as a threshold question when um, the law still exists and says that it really is a case-by-case -case analysis that um, that really needs to be applied in any individual case. And, you know, all the same tests apply in terms of the government's inability to assist and um, or inability to protect someone and other considerations. He put a few footnotes regarding uh, firm resettlement and really emphasizing his intent to really have a broad application of this case beyond domestic violence cases. So it sounds from what you're saying that um, a broader class of individuals is going to be impacted by this decision. Uh, what does that mean for, for those who, are, uh, who have similar pending applications for relief right now? Well, I think the language in the case really seems to specifically target a lot of the claims we're seeing out of Central America. So certainly any case involving domestic violence or gang violence are, will be flagged. But really in any other case, um, I think um, what, what's really important is to look at pending cases and, in, and see how the record can be further developed, particularly on things such as connecting doing more connecting of the dots between the non-state actor and the state. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the work that our women's program has done in really uncovering and underlining the connection between the state and, um, and victims of domestic violence, and I think the same could be said in a lot of the gang violence um, cases where certain reports may have been enough, but now really trying to, to, to make those connections more explicit will be really important. Um, I think that the, there will also be implications for um, individuals that are seeking asylum at the border and really the, the authority that AG Sessions has, has given to those um, decision makers on determining credible fear determinations and um, will we'll, we'll likely see a growing number of, of people not passing credible fear. Um, 
interviews and having immigration judges uphold those and see more people being being turned away after those um, initial reviews of their cases. Um, I think the other piece is to also explore whether there's other legal arguments that might um, might have a colorable claim for nexus between the persecution and one of the other protected grounds, political opinion, religion, race, or ethnicity, um, as the decision also seeks to, to undermine particular social group as uh, a protected class in of itself. Also, reasonable relocation, he also highlighted that to really be scrutinized um, at an even higher level and in a footnote on firm resettlement. So um, really developing the record to show that it's not reasonable under the regulation, um, which is broader than the persecutor finding the individual, and then firm resettlement. There's some. There's a really great training um, that walks through the different um, elements to determine whether or not it's an issue and whether or not an exception applies that's used for training refugee and asylum officers um, that really goes through a law that's quite elaborate in terms of assessing whether or not that will actually be a bar. And I think, again, that goes to highlight the, the individuals being targeted are those that are fleeing Central America that, that by foot are tracking through other other countries um, and trying to um, use that as a way to deter them from seeking protection in the United States. Right. Um, I would like to stay a little bit on the on the point of uh, arguments that can be made. What what are some arguments that advocates can make on behalf of their clients? Uh, because we hear um, there's a lot of commotion around this case um, in the past week or so, in the past few days. So are there any arguments that you suggest that advocates can make to uh, best protect their clients? First and foremost, emphasizing the fact that every case deserves to be analyzed on the merits on a case-by-case basis and on the record that exists. So really, again, making sure that you're making as thorough a record as possible to put the strongest case forward, especially in light of the extra scrutiny that's being called for under matter of AB. Um, also looking at circuit case law that is still good case law and that's favorable in your case. Um, Pre-ARCG case law that's still valid. Um, and then I think in terms of individual facts, again, focusing on the role of, um, of the state in some of these cases that involve non-state actors. Right, and kind of building on that, specifically in the women's rights context, when we're thinking about situations that involve domestic violence, um, looking at the state's unwillingness or inability to be able to protect the victim, there are things you could also add on. Um, you know, in this particular case, looking at whether the El Salvadoran government was not unwilling to protect her, the Attorney General's decision, it identified that she was able to obtain protective orders and that the police had arrested her ex-husband on at least one occasion. And so that, to him, indicated that the government actually wasn't unwilling to protect her. But when we're looking at evaluating the implementation of a country's laws relating to domestic violence, we're looking not just at whether the country has laws, but whether those laws are actually effectively being implemented. And we're looking whether countries have criminal laws to prosecute and punish perpetrators, and also whether there are protections that are available for victims of domestic violence, like, for example, the ability to obtain civil orders for protection. Um, and we also want to look to see 
um, you know, not just whether these laws exist, but whether they're effectively being implemented. So in this case, there was a reference to the fact that AB had been able to obtain multiple protective orders. But my question was, well, why did she need to obtain multiple protective orders? Were the orders that were issued by the courts, were they not being effectively carried out? And so looking deeper at the implementation of laws that actually exist, and that would be a great opportunity to speak with either local service providers in the area where your clients live or local service providers in the country where the client comes from in order to get information on the implementation of, lo of laws and how laws are, are being implemented in practice. Right, and I know we're focusing on uh, the uh, victim, the, the DV uh, PSG here, but another, um, another PSG that has come up through this case is, or we've heard a lot, uh, advocates talk a lot about is uh, that of gang activity or gang affiliation. And since we've seen um, aggressive enforcement lately uh, on um, against by the government against uh, teenagers uh, being accused of gang affiliation, um, is there anything you can uh, say about that, and uh, or any arguments that could be made? on that particular PSG after this decision? I think similarly, both in terms of, uh, well, I, I think analyzing the state role is, is critical and, and even at a more local level and seeing if the applicant is from a region where the state is basically been um, paid off by gangs or is really working for the gangs to um, enforce their interests or, or harm individuals that are um, not cooperating with the gangs or really just not investigating uh, instances where individuals are reporting harm by the gangs. Um, and then on the other hand, just looking at other areas where maybe the government has an interest in protecting people from gangs, but really seeing just how ineffective that can be. And I think there's numerous examples in, in terms of um, a lot of the ineffectiveness of the law enforcement or even when people are detained, there's lots of documentation in terms of just how much the gangs are able to continue to function even when people are in jail. So just the fact that a gang member was convicted of a crime and is serving time in jail does not mean that they don't have the power to continue to persecute the individual through um, the other members that are on the outside. Thank you for clarifying that. So uh, what happens next, um, and is there a way to challenge this decision? What is going on in the advocate community? The decision will likely be appealed to the Fourth Circuit for review and may even go to the Supreme Court for an ultimate decision. Of course, that's going to take um, take quite a bit of time. Um, and in the meantime, I think um, using language of existing good uh, circuit law um, and evaluating how um, claims can, can be continue to be articulated or you know, if there are any other valid reasons um, to to delay a particular case until until hopefully a favorable decision comes out. 
um, from above. But you know, I, the immigration practitioners are um, continuing to analyze, and we have teams of pro bono attorneys doing additional research and um, trying to support attorneys that are handling these individual cases and I think more than anything um, helping support their clients who are understandably concerned with the decision um, and it will take time but hopefully will um, in the end be seen uh, for what it is in terms of using uh, um, using valid uh, refugees um, as, a, as a political tool in an effort to try to deter people um, from, from coming to the United States for protection. And in the in the meantime, and uh, as the case is being appealed, well, are are immigration judges bound uh, by this decision? Well, the decision is binding on the immigration judges under the jurisdiction, and the attorney general is um, the the head of the Department of Justice that oversees the immigration judges. But again, um, really, what this decision seems to uh, do is is to persuade adjudicators to apply a blanket policy to a certain group of asylum seekers, and that, frankly, just is not what the law upholds. Um, I think in his decision, there are some examples, but really what he's um, attempting to do is just highlight what already exists as, as law and try to make generalities, and I think um, the law is is very specific in saying that each case should be decided on its merit on the individual record before them, and the immigration judges continue to have authority to do that. Right. And going back to the immigrant community and how it's been it's been affected by this decision, um, what would you advise, or do you have any? tips, any advice for advocates, immigration attorneys, uh, to tell their clients with respect, uh, their clients who have similar claims to the ones in matter of AB, uh, what should uh, advocates be advising their clients at this moment? First and foremost, for, for individuals that have clients with pending decisions, reminding them that due process protections are still in place and the law still requires their case to be decided on the merits on a case-by-case basis. Um, if Even if this decision leads to a negative finding in a particular stage in their case, unless they've exhausted all of, um, all of the appellate challenges, they can continue to appeal the case and um, attorneys are working to to develop um, arguments and, and challenge this decision and there are, are individual um, uh, claims that are existing within the within the record of the of, of the actual case and those the appellate process can take months or years this decision isn't going to uh, give cause to an individual to be immediately picked up and deported from the United States just because they filed a domestic violence-based asylum claim. Um, there are all of those due process challenges are still in place. They still will have their day in court and have the ability to appeal any um, negative decision on their asylum case that's made by an asylum officer or an immigration judge. 
Right. And you mentioned earlier that um, advocates and pro bono attorneys are starting to um, create resources and do more research uh, on the issue and on potential arguments that can be made at this point. Is there uh, anything, are there any resources that uh, you're aware of that you, you can um, point to um, that advocates can access so they can be prepared to defend their client's claim? I would say first connecting with if there's a, a nonprofit that works in your jurisdiction and works on asylum claims, they're likely working up materials for their staff or for their volunteer attorneys that are specific to the jurisdiction where you're representing individuals. So connecting with them to see what sorts of resources they're developing and, and, and can share. There's also um, some national efforts. The um, Hastings Center for Gender and Refugee Studies has their case support request process and are able to provide uh, resources and support there specifically for gender-related claims. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have resources on our website through our women's program. Mm -hmm. And a couple of examples, we have a website that's stopvaw.org, Stop Violence Against Women. And on that website, we provide a lot of information relating to various forms of violence against women and background information relating to the dynamics, but then also um, an evaluation and information relating to provisions that should be included in laws relating to violence against women. So that's a great resource in order to evaluate whether the laws, if they do exist in the country where your client comes from, if they actually are following international best practice standards. And then also on our website, on the Advocates for Human Rights website, we include a lot of the reports that we have prepared and provided to the various um, human rights mechanisms at the United Nations. So whether it's human rights treaty bodies or the Human Rights Council through the Universal Periodic Review. Mm -hmm. And so they're also a good source of information relating to a variety of countries on a variety of human rights topics. Thank you. I'm sure our, um, the, uh, the attorneys out in the field will appreciate these resources. Um, I believe we're coming to an end of this interview, so uh, is there anything else you would like to share, any last comments you would like to make before we close? I just wanted to note my particular concern with the use of the uh, term private behavior, quote-unquote private behavior relating to domestic violence. It, it indicates to me a, a misunderstanding of the dynamics of domestic violence, and it was used repeatedly to reference violence that was conducted by a non-state actor. Um, and there are women's advocates who have been fighting for decades all around the world in order to change the perception that domestic violence and other forms of violence against women are quote-unquote private conduct that happen behind closed doors. And it's not just a private matter. And so the, the use of that term, um, quote-unquote private criminal actions or, or private conduct, was really concerning, especially in the context that we see that's happening all around the world right now with laws relating to domestic violence, where domestic violence is either being decriminalized or there are other women's human rights, um, rights that are under attack in other countries around the world. So seeing that in this particular decision was, was particularly concerning to me. Well, thank you both so much. Um, thank you to Sarah and Teresa with the Advocates for Human Rights for being with us today. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.